how are these people start coming around to being top sellers and top performers in negotiation of there's this huge gap. What are they doing to close that gap and that perception gap? I don't know what they're doing to close the perception gap, but this is sort of the endemic challenges of doing research like this, is that you are essentially basing a certain amount of this on opinions. But we did spot check the data to see from like a sales manager's perspective, if the people that identified themselves as doing a good job achieving price targets, and if they were the one that they would want going into a negotiation, that they would say yes versus the other one. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Well, that was Mike Schultz. He's the president of The Rain Group. And Mike's joining me today on Sales Enablement, episode 786, to talk about the report Rain Group just published on B2B sales negotiations. It's titled Top Performance in Sales Negotiations, Surprising Research on Tactics Sellers and Buyers Use, What Works and What Doesn't. Mike and I are going to get into some of the key findings from the report, including why good business deals are often as much about good selling as they are good negotiation. We'll get into Rain's six essential rules of sales negotiation and what Mike's team found was the most effective sales negotiation tactic and why that tactic is rarely seen by buyers. And we'll explore some very interesting data points that illustrate the huge gap between how buyers perceive how effective sellers are at explaining their value proposition and the ROI of their product and the seller's own perception of how well they're selling. Now, here's one example. Only 20% of buyers believe that sellers, including top performers, understand how their solution meets the buyer's business needs and the ROI it can produce. So we're going to dig into this and much, much more. Before we get to Mike, I want to let you know that the whole team of people who work to produce this podcast are incredibly grateful for all of you who support us by listening to the show, telling your friends, sharing it on social media, and most importantly, subscribing to the show and giving us your feedback in the form of a rating and a review. And if you haven't already connected with me on LinkedIn, please do. Search Andy Paul after the slash real Andy Paul. All right, let's jump into it. Mike Schultz, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks so much for having me, Andy. Always a pleasure to talk with you. You're joining us from Boston today, and uh, you're a big Red Sox fan. You going to miss the start of the season? Yeah, I'm going to miss the start of the season. I'm an even bigger, even bigger Celtics fan, so I'm I'm missing oh. the continuation of the season there. What about yourself? Soccer, big soccer fan. But with a connection to Boston, because my team is Liverpool, and they're owned by the Fenway Sports Group. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So, yeah, big, big hole in my my early Saturday mornings without being able to turn on a Premier League game. Yeah, you said, I, I, I think you're in Boston, and I think I'm in Boston, too. I haven't left my house in about a month, so maybe I'm in Boston, maybe I'm in Oz. <laughs> it's really hard to know. Yeah, yeah, no, it's... We've gone, I think our record is we've gone two weeks without leaving the house. Uh, but at some point, we just had to get out and take a walk. Fully, protect, fully protected, though. Is that because the paparazzi are, are so busy at your front door that you yes, can't exactly. be bothered with them? Other yeah. questions and photo snapping? Yeah, you know, people are just obsessed with what happens in sales. Yeah, well, I, I thought it was just how good looking you were. But I guess it's the <laughs> yeah. whole expertise well, thing, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we're going to chat today about a research report that your firm put out recently called Top Performance and Sales Negotiations, Surprising Research on Tactics, Sellers and Buyers Use, What Works and What Doesn't. So, sort of overall question is, is more philosophical, is should salespeople even be involved in negotiating? 
I mean, if you could set it up such that sales was not involved in negotiations, all they had to do was get it to that point where it enters negotiations, would that be desirable? Yeah, that's almost like saying, should basketball players be involved in, in defense and should baseball players be involved in base running? I don't know if there's necessarily a way to separate it because not only do you have negotiation as often even a, a an explicit part of the sales process outlined by a company, uh, you have the value proposition case that you're making. And I don't mean from a marketing perspective or an elevator pitch. I mean the process you go through, whether it's in two meetings or a year and a half, to make sure that you have the conditions set to be the most valuable offering to buyers. So essentially, you are preparing for a negotiation the whole time because you're setting the you know, you're setting the conditions on the field for the end of the sales process. So you're you're both doing negotiation the whole time, and then you are explicitly involved in a negotiation. And I think you know, to your point, is 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 it really the right thing for sellers to be in negotiation? Uh, in some ways, sellers don't don't have a choice because they can't go through a whole process and then turn it off to over to someone else and say. Hey, I know that we have a $1.5 million deal and we are up against one of our toughest competitors, but I just don't want to personally be involved in this right now. Can you talk to Steve and my finance department about that? That's just not going to go well. So I don't know if there is a way to divorce sellers from negotiation itself. And in some ways it leads us into the discussion of the report. It's, you know, you have no choice. So you might as well make this a part of your expertise set and skill set so you can succeed with it as much as possible. Well, I think one of the key points you brought up, and certainly for me, is that integrated, you integrate negotiating throughout your selling process is how you package the deal is, in effect, part of the negotiation. How you package your offers is, in effect, part of the negotiations. I mean, ideally, you want to get to the point where, where if it gets handed off to procurement, that your deal is structured in such a way, your offer is structured in such a way that procurement really can't do much with it. Yeah, I mean, there, there we could start a conversation about procurement, and in fact, uh, we we might we may just uh, do that. But there's so much pent up into everything that you just everything that you just said. I mean, if you think about the buyer's perspective, let's say it's a huge purchase for a company. And an executive vice president is leading the charge for this huge purpose, uh, huge purchase, and the company is good size. Mm-hmm. And he has to present to the CEO and the board why he's doing this. He only needs to cover the answers to four questions, which is why act? Why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Why now? Why mm-hmm. are we doing this today versus something else? Uh, why am I doing it with a certain provider? So from the provider's perspective, it could be why us? And then why do I trust it's actually going to work? So to the extent that a seller can make sure that they answer, that they transfer from their head into the buyer's head, the answers to why act, why now, why us, and why trust, you're going to win the sale. So if why act and why now are really strong, it's we should do this because the ROI case is compelling. And then if we're going to do it, it's why us, why trust, why am I going to use one provider over another or one approach over another? And then why trust? 
sometimes the ROI case is great, but buyers have been sold an ROI case for a, a, a long, long time. And many buyers are burned when it literally just doesn't materialize. So it's not just about the ROI case. It's about the expectation that is going to come to fruition. But again, if they can answer why, why, why now, why us, why trust, then you are in the position where the buyer is absolutely going to do it. And then the why us, why trust, it's the alternatives are not as good. So we don't have the leverage that we would have from the buyer's perspective to go hammer them on price, for example. So um, you're, you're, le- you're leading up to this the whole time. Uh, and then when it comes to purchasing, I'll just, I'll just make a point. One of the things that we found with purchasing is that the business buyers, you, you would think that the business buyers and purchasing, oh, they're part of the same company, they're fine. Oh, wow. The stories that they told of how much they absolutely can't stand about working with each other are hilarious. <laughs> You're talking about the economic buyer with versus procurement, right? That there's this internal clash. Uh, yeah. So the economic buyer, uh, I don't like that term, by the I way. Don't. I think that it's unhelpful and misleading in terms of uh, the, the decision roles that buyers have. But yeah, the, the person that is, that is uh, the business buyer, so mm-hmm. to speak person that is looking for an ROI, who may or may not control the purse strings. Who owns the problem and the solution. Yeah, the one that owns the problem and the solution literally can't stand working with purchasing sometimes and vice versa. And one of the things that we found about purchasing is we ask purchasing a ton of questions about what it is that they're trying to to find out, what it, what it is that they're trying to do, what their goals are and what they're trying to achieve and uh, what their metrics were. And literally they didn't disagree. They didn't agree with themselves. So they were constantly asking for, we said, what's the one thing sellers can do to um, be better with you in the process. And they literally from purchasing person to purchasing person were diametrically opposed. So, you know, what's a seller to do, so to speak, but it, it, it's it certainly makes makes it interesting, and it certainly makes it not easy for a seller to figure out what does procurement want, because that's like lump, lumping them all together. And it's like, what do buyers want? Well, if you do that, but you have ten sales in, in ten opportunities in your pipeline, and they're important, you should find out what each individual buyer wants, because they probably don't look the same. We're just finding the exact same thing with procurement. Yeah, and but you have two interesting points that are. Somewhat supportive, somewhat even contradictory in the in the report. One is saying that, uh, despite what procurement will tell sellers, that they cited cost as their success metric most frequently by a, a wide margin, and internally. But then you also, on the other hand, say that that you found that buyers push hard on price, but price really isn't the issue. Yeah, well, it, it, it's it's kind of funny. So the price is less of an issue with the business buyers. Uh, and we asked, you know, there were probably, I mean, there's, there's been a ton of, there, there's a body of research over the last 50 years that I've seen on how price sensitive buyers are and just how price sensitive people are, and consumers are. And 20 to 30% of the population, if you look across the variety of academic studies, um, 20 or 30% of people are just sort of wired to be super, super, super price sensitive. But that means eight or nine out of 10 people um, look at price as a part of the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing was we asked procurement uh, with an open-ended question 
And there was a little bit more than, I think, 200 procurement buyers that we asked. Uh, we asked them uh, what the purchasing metrics were used um, to determine their success. And 62% of them cited cost factors. Meanwhile, we looked at the actual mission statements of some of these purchasing departments. Uh, we didn't identify anyone, but it was things like this. Uh, purchasing department mission statement. This is an actual one. Uh, purchasing is dedicated to providing and managing for our customers the most effective and efficient procurement processes and procedures for the acquisition of quality goods and services in the support of our company's mission and goals. Listen to this. Primary consideration is to provide the best possible quality goods and services to our constituents with price being secondary to quality. However, when we ask the people in this <laughs> purchasing department what their success metrics are, they all said cost. Right. So it's a nice little thing to have this mission on the wall, but when they sort of get into the jungle of what their jobs are, cost, 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 or you don't get a bonus. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, I, I interviewed a guest last year, a similar type thing, is that, yeah, procurement is aspiring to be judged on more overall business metrics tied to outcomes, but at the end of the day, they still default to price. Yeah, I wish I was taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a wife and a kid who would call her. I mean, I you know wish I had a pony, but it's not true, uh, but I'm certainly not putting it up on my website. <laughs> you know, My <laughs> aspirational goal is to do more than just ask for a lower price. I mean, it's, 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 it's literally hilarious just how what they say and what their actual metrics are and what they sort of do every day, um, just how different they are. So is there anything in, in the report that you uh, researched about whether procurement is increasingly out of the loop on purchase decisions and even, even negotiations on price? I'd seen some, something about that. Not specifically, is about some IT purchases where increasingly procurement was sort of out of the loop. Uh, not that I know about. Um, okay. In the buyers that we talked to from a business perspective, uh, none of them indicated that purchasing is being backed off of. Uh, and most of them said that purchasing is uh, involved and is now starting to actually be involved a little bit earlier. Um, but no, I, I didn't hear that purchasing okay. was All right. at all. All right. So one of the key finders was that um, talked about or so early in the report was that top performers are better. Top sales performers are better at negotiations than those who aren't top performers. Um, but you say in the study that you know some of the factors you talk about are really as much about good selling as good negotiation. Yeah, certainly good selling is good negotiation, but let me actually just um, just provide some specificity of what we looked at. Sure. We didn't look at top-performing sellers. We looked at the differences of top-performing sales negotiators, those who were satisfied with the outcome of negotiations, who achieved their pricing targets, and who were confident in their ability to negotiate. So we looked at people who are actually better at negotiation and then we, um, because... And determined by, how'd you determine that? So we, uh, it was two parts. It was part survey. So if you achieve your price target, you were confident in the negotiation and you were satisfied with the overall outcome, that was one. And then we, uh, we do um, actual sort of human research spot checks. 
checking in with those people who identified themselves as top performers versus others with the actual organizations. And we got more of the qualitative, yeah, yeah, he's really good versus, oh yeah, he just case all the time. So we sort of double check survey research with actuals uh, and we sort of norm out the data like that. So how did you define a top performer in negotiations? Uh, A mix of being satisfied with the negotiation results themselves um, for the negotiations that they have, that they achieve their price targets. Um, because if you achieve your price targets, you're more likely to uh, be doing well in negotiation and that you are confident participating in negotiations. So it was a mix of those three things. But interestingly, you had this huge gap you report in, in the study itself about between the seller's perspective of how well they do in terms of presenting the business case and the ROI as opposed to the buyer's perceptions of it. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, yeah, how, how are these people sort of coming around to being top sellers and top performers in negotiation if, if there's this huge gap? What are they doing to close that gap and that perception gap? Uh, I don't know what they're doing to close the perception gap, but it was, I mean, so this is sort of the you know, endemic challenges of doing research like this is that you do you are essentially basing a certain amount of this on opinions. But mm-hmm. we did spot check, we did spot check the data to see from like the sales manager's perspective if the people that identified themselves as doing a good job, uh, doing a job uh, achieving price targets, and if they were the one that they would want going into a negotiation, that they would say yes versus the other one. So that was one, um, and it's not like. It's not like, you know, testing for correctness on a knowledge test to say, yeah, 85% I can do, you know, I I can, I can um, tell you what happened in the Battle of Waterloo. So it's really hard to be precise about these kinds of things. But I think the gaps were, were in the opinions of what the buyers liked versus didn't like, what the buyers uh, appreciated when sellers did versus what the uh, sellers thought that they liked or didn't like, but sort of based on the hard facts of uh, being satisfied with the negotiation and achieving your price targets on a win, um, you know, that was sort of the, the identification criteria versus the lens by which they said Mm -hmm. the negotiations, you know, they appreciated or didn't appreciate. Yeah. I mean, I found some of the data from the buyer's perspective, perhaps some of the most illuminating in, in the report, and sort of lines up with other things we hear, which is one case is that that only one in five buyers believe that sellers deeply understand their own ROI case, which sort of, which sort of aligns with other research we've seen where you know 80% of C-level buyers don't believe they get any value from sellers. Buyers clearly feeling this. Yeah, so buyers are clearly clearly feeling that. And that, uh, I was going to say the exact same thing, is consistent with what, what we found. When we teach our foundations of consultative selling course based mm-hmm. on our, our method RAIN, RAIN stands for Rapport, Aspirations and Afflictions, Impact and New Reality. And impact is the most challenging thing. Uh, in fact, we press really hard and have for the last decade that before we do any kind of RAIN selling, um, sort of foundations of consultative selling workshops, that we do pre-work and analysis with the company to identify their impact model because in the actual classrooms, sellers are literally like deer in the headlights when it comes to 
uh, doing investment and return modeling and to be able to say, what am I actually going to change for you that's going to get you a financial result? That kind of financial literacy is one of the the, the most difficult things to find. Uh, however, in the top performers versus others, in the self-identified top performers in terms of like, you know, achieving their price targets and confidence in negotiations, the sellers themselves were more than double the likelihood that were top performers to say they understood how the solution met the buyer's business needs and ROI. 66% of the top performers um, answered that uh, in the affirmative, and only 31% um, only only 31% of the rest said, I, we understood how our solution met um, the business needs and ROI. It's a big report. That one's on page 22. I can't remember all of this. It's an 80-page report. But it sort, of, it sort of works out when you think about the math, though, is that if you take, yeah, 60%, assume you have a, an 80-20 distribution, uh, yeah, it works out to about 13 15% of sellers, not too far from 105, 1 in 5, that mm-hmm. are able to do that. Pretty much. So that is actually a, um, that's actually a good takeaway for the sellers. Ask yourself, look in the mirror and say, can I do the math that would be impressive to the CFO of my buyer mm-hmm. and say, that is a, not just a, um, a, a wild ROI case, but a plausible ROI case based on solid underlying changing of assumptions that I believe you could make the case could be achievable for me. Right. Sometimes with the ROI calculators out there, it says, well, if you give us $10,000, you'll get a hundred million dollars in the next three weeks. And it's just like, it's all just a load of crap. Well, and the so buyer knows that make too. a plausible defensible ROI case. If, if you can't do that, like get help. Because it makes a huge difference. Right. So, which identifies a, a huge gap that I've been talking about for a while in sales, and I'm sure you have as well, is that we've got this gap of, we'll call it a business acumen, financial literacy gap mm-hmm. um, in sales. And it speaks directly to what you're just talking about is, yeah, I might be able to come make a pitch about what we do and, and what the value prop is, but when I got translated into action that's relevant to the buyers, we really fall short. So how do yeah. we tra- how do we train people on this? This is this to me is you know how do we educate people about this? Because uh, I don't see companies doing it, and it's certainly not happening. You know, it's not like we expect people to come out of college and know this. It's a lot of this is experiential based, but we have to fill this gap somehow. Yeah, we have to fill this gap somehow, and that is essentially what we do when we wake up and and go to work uh, every day. So you know, and and in some ways, this sort of ROI case making, and you do sort of have to, there's a certain amount of financial literacy training, but it's usually only three or four or five factors that need to move for you to be able to show how, how an impact case actually becomes sort of financial. So it's usually not that big, as big of a leap as people think, mm. um, but it's the kind of thing that if you don't know that, and then the buyer says, well, we're going to need a better price. If you don't have a plausible understanding of the ROI case, then you're just playing a, a, you're just playing a game of chicken. You don't want a negotiation to be a game of chicken or a game of tactics. You want to understand your leverage because of the difference that you can make. So, I mean, I wish I, I could wave my magic wand and say, here's how you train people. Uh, here's how we just sort of make a, a sea change. But 
you know, it's, it's, it's hard work because we do it all the time. I mean, I can say that, that, that we've had success in doing it, but I certainly can't say that that one has a silver bullet. I can only say that there's an ROI case for teaching your sellers how to make an ROI case uh, because if they can, then they can they can sell more sophisticated things. Oh, absolutely. And then something that's sort of a, a cousin to that that's also in the report, which I, again, found really interesting is, and I think a huge disconnect, is that these, and this is self-reporting coming from, from sellers, that only 33% of sellers strongly agreed that they can articulate their value and differentiators over their competition. Yeah. I mean, that, that one just, I sort of stopped on that one. It's like self-reporting, right? You suspect, you'd expect salespeople to self-report something different. Yeah. Is, is only a third said, yeah, we really even know how to sell our product and position it against the competition. Well, and that, and that was in the conversations that we had, that was the thing that came up. And it, we, we talked to some people at, let's call them, big software company. Mm-hmm. And at big software company, we would say things like, how does your software make a difference? And they would say, oh, most of our clients are doing one, two, and three. And when they change it, they save this, they save that, they make more revenue, things go faster, they have less heartache, all that kind of stuff. And then when they said versus the competition, they would say, yeah, competition can do the same thing. So the tough part was making this case against the competition. More people were able to make the general do it or don't do it case. Right. But when it came to the competition, that was something that, you know, the sort of what we call the ability to see, succeed in the win lab. If you're going after a huge sale, you know the buyer's going to say yes. The question is just who do they say yes to? Mm-hmm. Um, this is a more sophisticated and muddled battle kind of thing that sellers have to go through to be able to win. Um but just in general, yeah, that's another area that's tough. And it's kind of funny. We, we asked a lot of the buyers, just um, got me thinking about the buyers and what works for the buyers. Um, almost everyone, when we asked sellers to guess, we, we had a webinar with over 1,000 people, and we said, of these five tactics, what do you think is uh, the number one tactic that works the best mm-hmm. for buyers? Uh, and we, we listed five tactics. One of them was we need a better price. And another one was meet us in the middle. And the, everyone thought that that was one and two. Oh, and we need a better price and let's split the difference. But the number one tactic that buyers say works for them is using the seller's eagerness to get a deal done by wringing out a final concession. It's a tactic in our training programs we call one last thing. It's like, and I have my pen and I have the contract. I have your check in my hand. But before I sign it, one last thing. Sellers fall all over themselves at their time of lowest leverage and drop out one final concession. So it's just hilarious the kind of things that, in part, when we're talking about ROI and we're talking about um, we're talking about um, sort of battle planning against the, the competition, that sort of big, heady stuff. But the buyers are like laughing all the way of the bank when they just they just like <laughs> ring out a final concession because they ask. It, so there are the sort of basic tactical, you know, you know, facepalm kind of stuff that 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 a lot of the of our clients, as much as we can show them how they can have huge wins if they can do those sort of more heady stuff, they also just save a percent or two here on margin like crazy by just not getting their ass kicked by stupid crap that they don't have to get their ass kicked by. Yeah, the usual BS tactics that the procurement uses. Because they work, right? No, and the business buyers. Business buyers do them as well. Yeah. 
So you, I just briefly, we don't have a ton of time left, but I just wanted to go through sorry, quickly your six essential rules of sales negotiation. First one, always be willing to walk. Yep. So always be willing to walk. A lot of sellers going in, and you can almost feel it if you're observing the sale. It's like they need the sale. That that, And once buyers feel like the seller is just itching to make the sale, they know that they can squeeze you until the very last second, until you're basically crying before you say, forget it, I can't do this. But when, but when in your mind, and that's why this is first, in your mind as a mindset, if you go in knowing that you do have leverage and you do have value, and that if the buyers don't want to buy, then you can just go someplace else, they can feel that. And the oh, yeah. seller, and, and that's sort of like just a precursor to any ability to succeed with sales negotiation. And it, it's so important. I learned this lesson. <laughs> it's a story I tell myself is, is my first big over a million dollar deal. Uh, and so company was in Midwest. I fly out there with my boss and I had no idea he was going to do this. And we, this was meant to be the last meeting. We were going over, you know, final points, negotiating with the CEO and C-level people, the, the buyer. And at one point, my boss, the VP of sales just gets up and says, well, hmm, I thought you guys were serious buyers. Uh, thanks for your time. And walks out the door. <laughs> he doesn't say, Andy, come along. He just walks out the door. And I'm sitting there, but my jaws dropped, right? It's mm-hmm. like, oh, shit. I have this big deal sitting here. And so he seems like he's gone. So I get up and start walking out. Yeah, they come chase us down and say, yeah, 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 we want to buy it. But I mean, he showed it to me firsthand. Yeah. Like, don't toy with me. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, 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 and you're sitting there like, I just learned from Don Corleone how to do it. <laughs> I just about wet my pants is what I did, yeah. So the second one is build value. We sort of talked about that. Two parts of build value. One is you have to do a great job in the sales process, making sure that you answer those four questions. If the buyers know why, why now, why ask, why trust, you'll be in great shape to start, and the alternatives won't be as good. Second is when you actually get down to especially big agreements, sometimes like they, this is literally where the win-win stuff comes in. And by the way, we didn't find the... Um, the, the top performers to be more likely to use win-win right. uh, over other kinds of things. So that's a different, different discussion. But let's say you're in the position where you're literally trying to solve problems. Instead of just cutting price here and cutting price there, we find a huge amount of sellers, if they can come up with creative solutions to contracting terms, agreements, added value, they can hold price in ways that really make buyers happy uh, without just cutting so if to the extent that you can figure out value before the before the negotiation and during the negotiation itself, uh, you can be much more successful. Yeah, absolutely. There was uh, a report, research report reported on HBR, Harvard Business Review, I don't know, this was maybe eight years or so ago, these professors talk about tie-breaking selling. And they'd done some research and found just what you just talked about is oftentimes when you get to that last bit and you're tempted to cave that extra one, two points on price to close the deal. He says, find the non-cash things that make a difference. Mm-hmm. And they all exist. You just got to be creative in doing it. And then the what they found actually is the buyers are more likely to close with those people offering those types of solutions than somebody saying, yeah, here's an extra 1-2%. Yep. Uh, in fact, they, they really appreciate those non-cash things for sure. Okay. Well, the last one we'll talk about, we don't, people have to read the report, go to your website and get that, is uh, you start talking to us. Trade, don't cave. 
and mm-hmm. be creative, find a way to come up with something that's, that's as I said, perhaps non-cash. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's not just uh, find something, but it's literally just like don't cave. So if someone asks you for something, don't just say, yeah, sure. In 90% of the situations, it's better to ask for something back. And I will leave it like this. Top performers are 2.6 times more likely than the rest to be prepared to trade meaning that they know what they can offer back to say, yeah, if, yeah, I can do X, Y, Z, but you know, that's kind of a big ask. Would you guys be willing to do a video testimonial for the work that we do with you? Assuming that three months from now, you're happy with how things are going. You can get something like that. And that company is a huge name. That'd be worth 50 grand to you. Yeah. But what are you, what are you prepared to ask for? Well, and part of what you may be prepared to ask for, part of what you may trade is say, yeah, we could do that, but we'll have to take this off the table from a deliverable standpoint. Or we certainly could drop the price on that, but right now we're looking at an 18-month license. Could we go to a 21-month mm-hmm. license and extend the license by just three months in order to achieve your overall target of et cetera, et cetera? So, you, so it, it depends, and, and that's where you have to be able to do the math right. to know the financial value of what 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 they're asking for and what you want to ask for back. Yeah, when I was selling really nice multi-million dollar deals, uh, my most effective technique was what I talked about is we had have this whole thing put together, the offer, so that if they tried to negotiate on any one part, we'd say, yeah, well, we could we could pull that part. We could de-scope the deliverable based on your needs, but you know, if you want a lower price, and the business buyers would never let that happen. Mm-hmm. And they, they would always rule the day over procurement at the end of the day. Absolutely. All right, Mike, fantastic as always to talk with you. Um, how can people learn more about this report and RAIN and so on? Uh, pretty straightforward. If you just go to raingroup.com or Google RAIN Group, uh, you can go to our negotiation section of research and pick up a copy of the report. We also, in our white papers, have an abridged version for anyone to download um, um, based on the research here. Just find the negotiation white paper and that'll be it. All right. Perfect. Well, Mike, as always, fantastic to talk to you and look forward to doing again soon. Thanks so much, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. We're so grateful for your support of this show. And I want to thank Mike Schultz for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. If you could also leave us a rating or review and let us know how we're doing, we'd appreciate it. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.